you have a copy of God's Word, please turn in it to the Gospel of John, and John chapter 14. John 14, and we'll look together at just three verses this morning. These verses are verses 12 through 14. John 14, verses 12 through 14. Jesus, speaking to His disciples, continues with these words in John 14, verse 12, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will He do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in My name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask Me anything in My name, I will do it. I'd like to ask that we pray once more, and as we do, uh, let's remember uh, Zach DePrima. He's preaching this morning at Friendship Baptist Church in Germantown, uh, not far from here. So let us pray for him and them, and let us pray for ourselves. Let's go to God in prayer together. Father, we pray that You would come now by Your Spirit, that You would open up our minds to understand the truths of Scripture, that You would do that here, that You would do that through the ministry of Zach at Friendship Baptist Church in Germantown and for that congregation there, and that You would do that for every one of Your churches that gather this morning. Come and give us Your Word through Your appointed servants by the power of Your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I find these three verses in the Upper Room Discourse in John 14 uh, to be among the most difficult verses to interpret in the entire Gospel of John. Some of the most challenging verses to interpret in all of John's Gospel. And I'll just be open, put my cards on the table, and confess to you uh, that some of the precise meanings of the words, phrases, and the precise implications of the very grand and glorious promises contained in these verses are not altogether uh, clear to me. In a survey of the leading commentaries, leading commentators on this passage tells me that I'm not alone. Uh, These verses present some significant challenges to the interpreter of God's Word. That said, however we understand these verses, And and the details of these verses, the precise meanings of some of the words in these verses, one thing is for sure. Uh, These three verses and and the two significant promises that they contain promote a very large vision for what Christ is pleased to do through His people and through His church. And they are clearly meant to drive us, God's people, His disciples, His church, to believing prayer that we might accomplish the great things Christ intends for His church body. So let me ask you this morning, believers gathered here, do you have high expectations, uh, lofty expectations for the great things that God is doing in the world through His church? And are your prayers marked by great faith and by large 
hopes for what God will do for His people who come to Him as He has said in Jesus' name. What are your expectations for the church in our day and age? What are your expectations for this particular local church and the other churches like it? How do you think about the church and its mission and what Christ is doing through His disciples? Do you think of the church as a band of struggling, trembling, fledgling disciples huddled together in a safe place, insulated from the outside world, waiting it out until Christ returns? Contrast that vision for the church with the one conveyed in the following quote from the great preacher Charles Spurgeon. In an April 1865 issue of his monthly magazine, The Sword and the Trowel, Spurgeon wrote this, the Christian church was designed from the first to be aggressive. It was not intended to remain stationary at any period, but to advance onward until its boundaries became commensurate with those of the world. It was to spread from Jerusalem to all Judea and from Judea to Samaria, and from Samaria unto the uttermost parts of the earth. It was not intended to radiate from one central point only, but to form numerous centers from which its influence might be spread to the surrounding parts and to the whole world. Spurgeon believed that the church, by its very nature, is an aggressive entity. He argued that it's never to be static, but should always be advancing. He understood that the church is not principally a maintenance project, but an energetic and dynamic force for the spread of the gospel and for the accomplishment of great things throughout the world for the glory of God in Christ Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, I ask you, are we just surviving, just holding on until Christ comes back? Or are we meant to advance? And are we meant to take the offensive? And are we meant to go from strength to strength and accomplish great and mighty things for the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, as we'll see plainly in our text this morning, as Christ prepares His disciples for His imminent departure, maybe 12 hours away from His death and days away from His resurrection and ascension, He is also preparing them for the great things He will carry out through them and through His church in the days following His resurrection and ascension. So though there is some difficulty in interpretation of these verses, I don't want us to miss out on the glory of these promises and the large vision for the church and for each and every disciple that these promises are meant to convey. So brothers and sisters, let's labor carefully to understand what it is the Lord Jesus is holding out to His disciples, to His church in these verses that we might be better equipped to carry on the works that He has called us to. So there's basically two promises in these three verses, two general promises, large promises, glorious promises, and we'll consider each one in turn in our time together this morning. So the first promise is this, the promise that believers will do greater works than those of Jesus. That's the first promise. The promise that believers, God's people, His church, will do greater works than those of Jesus. Look with me again at verse 12, if you would. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in Me, 
will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will He do, because I am going to the Father. Now, what does this verse mean? You just look at it for 15 seconds. Just look at the verse. What is Jesus telling His disciples in John 14, verse 12? We know it's a glorious promise, right? Something wonderful is being conveyed in these words. But I think there are some challenges in interpreting precisely what Jesus is talking about here. And what's more, I think we could run into some real problems if we misinterpret these verses. There's some errors to avoid as we seek to understand uh, this verse correctly. So let's just do this. Uh, Let's do precisely what you should do whenever you encounter a verse in the Bible uh, and the meaning is a little obscure and you're not exactly sure what's being conveyed. Let's just go word by word, phrase by phrase, asking the Holy Spirit for His help, and do the very best that we can before the Lord. So there are four phrases in particular that I think we can open up to get at the meaning of this particular promise, this particular verse. So the first phrase, the first clause, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, stop. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me. So, so who is Jesus talking about? Who is this promise directed to? Now, I think pretty clearly, it's a promise to every disciple. Whoever believes in Jesus, whoever believes in Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, this promise is intended for you. Having said that, I think there is a, maybe a special and, and immediate application to those 11 men sitting there with Jesus. So, so it's whoever here believes in me. He has a particular word he wants to convey to them, and there is an immediate application for them uh, in the coming days in the primitive age of the church. So I'm not going to deny it applies to all of us and to every believer in every place, but I don't want us to miss the, the special, peculiar, and immediate application this will have for these apostles gathered there with Jesus. So let's not jump too quickly to how this applies to us without seeing the way in which it was worked out in the lives and ministries of these apostles. That's the first phrase. Whoever believes in me has a general application to everybody, special application to the apostles. All right, second phrase. Whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. Okay, let's stop there. Will do the works that I do. What is Jesus talking about? What are the works that He's talking about specifically? Well, you get out word study, concordance, and you look up every reference to the word works and see what He might be talking about. Every reference to the word works in the Gospel of John, let's say. Uh, And if you look up every reference to Jesus' works, you recognize that that term can be used in a few different ways. Uh, Jesus would speak of doing the works of the Father in the sense that He does whatever the will of the Father is. Uh, This is the way He uses that word in John 4 to His disciples. My food is to do the works of Him who sent me. Uh, Which I understand more generally to be, my will is to do His will. Another way it could be used is to refer to uh, the ethical things that Jesus did, like, like good works. And these are often enjoined unbelievers as well. 
we're, we're to do the works that Jesus did in the sense that we're to follow His moral example. That said, by far the most prevalent use of this word in John's gospel is a reference to His miracles. The works that I do that bear witness to the Father, the the signs, the miracles, seven of them in total that are highlighted in John's account. And we know he did much more than seven. John will say that at the end of his gospel. Uh, But ordinarily, when that word is used, it's referring to the, the miracles of Jesus. The works of Jesus are his miracles ordinarily. And that's the way I think the word is used in verse 11, which we didn't read. Uh, He says, you're to believe the Father on account of the works that I have done. In other words, the miracles I've done that bear witness that I have come from the Father, I've been sent from the Father, and bear witness that I too partake of the divine nature. So I don't think there's any way of avoiding that this word works is definitely a reference to miracles. Jesus is referring to the miracles that He does, the supernatural displays of power that authenticate His ministry and His message. That's what I believe He's talking about in verse 12. Uh, so whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And, and, and obviously, if we're thinking about the apostles, this was clearly carried out in their ministry, right? The apostles were given, by the help of the Holy Spirit, the power to work miracles, uh, miracles that authenticated the gospel message. Uh, so they partook in supernatural healings and supernatural displays of power that evidenced the truth of the gospel message. Uh, So, so far, so good, at least if we're looking at the example of the apostles. They believed on Jesus, and they too performed miracles in their ministry that verified the gospel message. Uh, But the next two clauses, I think, are most important for them and for us in understanding what Jesus is promising here, okay? Uh, So, the next thing that's promised is that uh, greater works than these will He do. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, he being the person who believes in me. What does that mean, greater works? Does that mean, we said the word works means miracles. Uh, Okay, so the disciples are going to perform greater miracles than those of Jesus. They'll perform the same miracles, and then they'll also perform greater miracles. I don't think that will work. Like, I don't think Jesus is establishing a scale of quality for particular miracles. Like, like raising Lazarus from the dead, that was an 8 out of 10. Uh, but speaking in a tongue that you didn't know before, that's a 9 out of 10. I don't think that's the idea. And we're helped in this by something you may see, actually, in your uh, edition of uh, the Bible, your edition of the New Testament. That word works in your copy of the Bible will probably be in italics. The second use of that word works. Greater works than these. If it's not in italics, it should be in italics because that word is probably not there in the original Greek text. That word is supplied in the English translation. So, so it literally reads, uh, 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 you will do also do the works that I do and, and greater than these will you do. Or greater will you do, literally. I think more accurately, we should translate that part of the verse, greater things than these will you do. I think that's a more faithful translation to the original Greek, okay? You can take my word for it, or I can give you some commentaries to help you see that as well. But that's how I'm interpreting the passage here this morning. So we read, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, 
and greater things than these will he do. Meaning, uh, greater things than just raw miracles and supernatural displays of power that verified the gospel message. There's something greater than miracles that Jesus has for His disciples and His church to carry out. And if that's our understanding of this verse, then I think what those greater things are sort of becomes obvious. What are the greater things that the apostles carried out? Greater things than the miracles themselves. Well, it was theirs and it is ours to publish the full gospel to the world, as in the completed gospel, something Jesus never did, actually. He, he looked ahead to the fulfillment of the gospel promises. We look back on the work of redemption completed, and we publish the good news of the work of redemption that is finished to the whole world. Jesus could not have said at the upper room, it is finished. The best He could have said is, it will be very soon. And he says similar things in the Gospel of John. But see, the disciples have the advantage of preaching the whole gospel, not just the death of Christ, but His resurrection and His ascension and His session at the right hand of the Father. Uh, through the ministry of the apostles, the great cosmic mystery hidden in previous ages would be revealed. And the manifold wisdom of God would be displayed to the world and to the principalities and powers in the spirit realm. Uh, through the ministry of the apostles and through the ministry of the church, the gospel would penetrate into the darkest places in the world and souls would be saved on a scale altogether unknown in Jesus' ministry. There is a small band of disciples in Judea when Jesus ascends to His Father. Just a few short days, that number would multiply to thousands upon thousands. And in a few short years would extend to nations all across the known world in that time. The church would be built. The gates of hell would not prevail against it. The kingdom of God would be established. The apostles would be given the keys of the kingdom, and they would have authority to bind and loose in heaven. Strongholds would be torn down. Satan would be crushed under the feet of Christ's followers. These are the greater things that Jesus' disciples, those who believe on Him, would accomplish. Now you say, I don't know about that. I mean, is, is that really greater? I mean, Jesus healed a man who was paralyzed for 38 years. He, he restored sight to a man who was born blind. Are you saying these things are really greater than, than that? Well, let me ask you from God's perspective, which is greater? Paralyzed man being healed and regaining the strength to walk? or the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ penetrating into the darkest parts of China to the conversion of millions of former idol worshipers who formerly loved darkness rather than light, but now have been born again by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, what is greater, healing a man born blind physically or supernaturally giving spiritual sight to millions the world over through the Spirit-anointed preaching of the gospel by chosen men who were themselves formerly blind and lost, but have been transformed by the power of God. Which is greater from God's perspective. And consider what the apostles did. And look what the church has done over the centuries since Jesus returned to His Father. Look at the sheer scale and scope of these works. 
We're not talking anymore about a few local miracles. And I'm not trying to diminish the power of those miracles in any way. But we're not talking anymore about a few local miracles. We're talking about the greatest and most powerful movement the world has ever known, spreading over the earth like a blanket and showering blessing upon blessing and miracle upon miracle over the whole race of men. I can make this case to you this way. If you could go to that moment in John 14 and verse 12, you're there in the upper room with these men and with Jesus. And you leaned over to Thomas, Peter, Andrew, John. You see, what, what would seem more impossible to you at this moment? Jesus miraculously providing a loaf of bread at dinner tonight? Or are you going to the very people who are going to kill your rabbi and your Messiah, by the way, just a few weeks from now, preach to them in a tongue that you never studied or learned before, to the conversion of 3,000, some of whom were the very people who put to death that man at the head of the table. It wouldn't test my faith at this point to see him provide dinner tonight. But you're telling me I'm going to stand before people who killed my Messiah, proclaim the truth in a tongue that I never studied before, and 3,000 souls are going to be converted, and you're saying, those are the people that killed the Lord? No way. With man, this is impossible. We're going to need some sort of power, some sort of supernatural intervention if that sort of thing is ever going to happen. I contend these disciples, their, te- their faith would be tested more to believe that could ever happen than that Jesus could provide a loaf of bread. Uh, They they would be more astonished if they could see the work of the church 2,000 years on, uh, penetrating into the darkest places in the world, into every corner, the utmost parts of the earth, than they would by Jesus performing any miracle in that moment. But now we come to the final phrase, the final phrase. Uh, And I think this is the key to everything, really. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, that's the first phrase, Immediate application to the apostles will also apply to us, which we'll see in a moment. Uh, We'll also do the works that I do, the miracles of Jesus, which at least in the experience of the apostles was carried out. And greater things than these will He do, uh, being the work of the church throughout the ages to the salvation of millions. And then the last phrase, because I am going to the Father. So what? What does that mean? Jesus is actually telling them, you're going to do great things because I'm going to leave you and because I'm going to go to the Father. It's of a piece with something He's going to say in chapter 16, verse 7, it is to your advantage that I go away. And that's true for us. It is presently to our advantage that the Lord Jesus is not physically present with us. Now, how on earth could it be to their advantage and to ours? Jesus seems to connect with that word because. Jesus seems to connect His leaving them and going to the Father as a necessary prerequisite to them accomplishing these greater things, these greater works. You see that? The accomplishment 
of these greater things that the apostles and the church will do is conditioned upon Jesus returning to the Father. So what does he mean? Well, I think he's referring to two things in particular. Two things in particular. First of all, Jesus returning to his Father means that Jesus will take the station of power and authority. Uh, he, he is no longer going to be uh, the, the humble Messiah occupying human flesh, submitting himself to the abuse of his captors. He is ascending to the place of power and authority. And from that place, he will raid and he will rule and he will dispense power to his people. Give gifts to men. And build his church, as the scriptures say. You might think of the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. What's the preamble to the Great Commission? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Which I'm saying is the greater things that these apostles were called to do and the church is called to do. I have unlimited resources of power and authority. Therefore, go knowing that I'm ready to dispense that power to the one who asks, and I'm willing to work within my people to accomplish the great things that I have called them to. That's the first meaning, I think, here, the first advantage to these disciples by Jesus returning to His Father. The second is more important in terms of our context, in terms of our context, not just more important generally, but in terms of our context in John 14, and that is that when He returns to the Father, secondly, He will give to us the Holy Spirit. He will give to us the Holy Spirit. This introduces one of the most important themes in the upper room, the giving of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to explain all of this now. I hope that you can come and join us for our exposition of John 14, 15, and 16. There's a lot of confusion in the world and in the church today about what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is. If you want to know what that ministry is, go to John 14, 15, and 16, and we'll be talking about that in the weeks to come, not talking about it much today. But, but these disciples, at this point, you realize this, right? They did not know the intimate, personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit, at least in the way they would experience it later on. Somebody just asked you to flip over to the next book of the Bible, Acts chapter 1. It's the next book in your New Testaments. I just want you to see uh, how it is that the gift of the Holy Spirit was given for the advantage of the church to empower them to do the great things that Jesus is forecasting and foreshadowing here. Look at Acts 1, verse 8. But you will receive, this is Christ talking, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is saying from my station, from my vantage point at the right hand of God, I am going to send forth the Spirit, clothe my people with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's witness is connected to power. And what is that power for? It's principally to empower God's people, Christ's church, to be a witness in Judea, in Samaria, and indeed to the uttermost parts of the earth. Turn just a page or two over to Acts chapter 4. Remember the promise now. If you believe in me, you're also going to do the works that I do, 
You can do greater things than this because I am going to the Father. I contend this is fulfilled, Acts 4, verses 29 through 31. So the disciples are encountering intense opposition. We read verse 29 of Acts 4, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. Signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. You see almost all the parts of John 14, 12 in this passage. I mean, they could just as easily have said, right, Lord, you remember the words you said to us in the upper room. That those who believe would do the works, the miracles that you have done, and they'll do even greater things than this because you go to the Father. Now we pray to you, and we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit and power that we might carry on signs and wonders, and now the greater works, that we might continue to speak the Word with all boldness. You see that? Why do these disciples want the power of the Holy Spirit? So that in the face of opposition, they would be able to speak the Word of God with all boldness unto the salvation of sinners. Fruitfulness on a scale that was never known in the days of Jesus' ministry. Truly, truly, I say to you, John 14, 12, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater things than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Now, what does this mean for us gathered here today? We no longer live in the primitive age of the church. We don't know the apostles personally. We can see, recorded for us, how this was fulfilled in their ministries. What does this mean for believers today? Because I think we are included in the whoever believes. So what does it mean for us gathered here? Well, we ourselves are included in the whoever believes, and we continue in the work begun by the apostles. God is pleased to work greater things through us also. Though perhaps not accompanied with exactly the same demonstrations of supernatural power through miracles, nonetheless, we too bear our witness. And we too are used of Christ for the salvation of men's souls. We preach the full gospel in the power of the Spirit. We are used of God for the planting of churches for the tearing down of strongholds, for the building up of God's kingdom, for victories over satanic powers, for penetration into spiritual darkness, for binding and loosing in heaven. It is ours to preach the mystery of the gospel now revealed, such that the manifold wisdom of God is manifested to the world, to Satan himself, under the vindication of God's wisdom and justice and power. And ours is the greater fruitfulness throughout the world as we bear witness to our Savior. Brothers and sisters, these greater things are being accomplished now, and they are being accomplished through us, through Christ's disciples, through those who believe, through His church. Jesus has kept His promise. This is not just too good to be true. It's being worked out in our day and age through local churches just like our own, through the kingdom of God throughout the world. 
Now, what implications does that have for us as a local church? Well, this is how I think this promise is to, to hit us. I'm not thinking now about all the details of it. This is how it's supposed to hit us, I think, when we read this promise. We should be encouraged individually and as a church body to adopt very lofty kingdom ambitions because Christ has returned to the Father and because He has all power and authority and because He has given us His Spirit and He has promised that great things will be done through His church. Not tiny, small, insignificant things, but great things through all those who believe because He has returned to the Father. That we shouldn't set low expectations for what Christ might accomplish through us. Do you know that famous quote from William Carey, the pioneer of the modern missions movement? As he went to give the gospel from England to the Serampore Indians in India. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God like He told us to in John 14, verse 12. And then go out in the power of His Spirit, praying to Him in Jesus' name, and attempt great things for God. And did William Carey experience the vindication of this text in his own experience? He certainly did. He certainly did. An entire missions movement was started to the salvation of millions across the world. Do you have the same expectations as William Carey. I don't mean to go to Serampore Indians, but do you live by this maxim? Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Or have you settled into a life that is casual, and riskless, and insulated? You don't expect great things from God, you're just hanging on until Jesus returns. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you. I want to appeal to you. God has promised to do great things in and through us in our generation. We should be enterprising for Christ. Our vision for what God will accomplish in His church and through His people should be broad and should be grand. God is not doing itty-bitty things through His church. God has grand things for His church and great works planned that will bring glory to God. We're not just meant to huddle up here and survive and hold out till Jesus gets back. As Spurgeon said, the church was meant to be aggressive. We must go from strength to strength. We must lay hold of the great things Christ would do through His church. Now, this is not the point where I say, and if we just had faith enough, we'd have a hundred baptisms next year. And if we would just believe this promise enough, we'd plant 20 churches in the next 10 years. This is not a specific promise to a particular local church, but a grand and general promise to a universal church. But we should have hope, as those who believe on Christ and are part of that universal church, that God might be pleased to work these very things through us. Clearly, the meaning, the purpose, the intent of these words from Jesus is to inspire us to attempt greater things in God's kingdom, and to, to go to God in believing prayer, asking Him in the hope that He will do it. So I'm not promising you if we pray, there's going to be a revival on Wake Forest campus. But I am telling you, this text gives us license to attempt to see it realized. You understand what I'm saying? 
This is not uh, uh, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Uh, This is not faith healing. This is not just believe the promise, cling to the blessing, and you'll have it. I'm not saying that. Jesus doesn't specify what the great works are that He's going to do through each one of us individually, but He does promise that through His church, He is pleased and He wills to accomplish great things. And so I think it's in every way appropriate that we as one of Christ's true churches would be enterprising for Christ's sake, that we would have great kingdom ambitions for what He might be pleased to do through our local church and this gathering of those who believe. And it would be appropriate for each believer here to adopt that philosophy of William Carey. I have warrant in the Scriptures to attempt great things for God. He'll accomplish His will one way or the other. Doors might be shut and doors might be opened. But I'm going to cling to this promise, and I'm going to elevate my expectations for what God might be pleased to do through me. Is that not an appropriate application from this text. Well, Jesus, you have said that because you have gone to the Father and because you have all power and authority and because you have given me and my brothers and sisters the gift of the Holy Spirit, that you are pleased to work great things in and through us. And I have an idea about what that might be. I want to start a Christian school. I want to plant a church I want to to find a way in my vocation and in my job to resource missionaries and church planters. I maybe want to contemplate a call to pastoral ministry. Or something like, I want to speak the gospel to my neighbor. Against all odds, I don't think there's any chance she'll believe. But Lord, would, would you help me? Like you did those disciples? through the power of your Spirit, to speak with boldness? That's the greater things, brothers and sisters, that we might witness to a watching world that Jesus Christ is Lord over all and that He's a Savior for sinners. So I want to encourage you, in light of this promise from the Lord, to elevate your expectations for what Christ might be pleased to accomplish through you, through us, and through His church throughout the world. That's the first promise, and I deliberately spent most of our time there because I think it's more difficult to interpret than the second. Okay, the promise that Christ is pleased to do greater things through His disciples. Now, the second promise, and we'll be much more brief here, the promise of answered prayer in Jesus' name. The promise of answered prayer in Jesus' name, verses 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Plainly another grand and glorious promise. But what exactly does it mean? What does it entail? The first thing to note is that we're to pray in Jesus' name. We're to pray in Jesus' name. All prayer is to be offered in Jesus' name. And and I want you to note, this would have been completely new to the disciples at this point. They never prayed in Jesus' name. I don't know exactly how you closed prayers to Yahweh in the Old Testament, but you didn't pray in Jesus' name. You didn't say those words. We didn't even know the name of Jesus back then. But now Jesus is saying, prayer from now on will be offered in my name. 
I who am the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father, you will pray through my name. And what does it mean to pray through Jesus' name? Well, it's certainly to recognize that He is the only way to the Father. No one has access to God except through Jesus. Uh, It is also to recognize that Jesus Himself, as Hebrews tells us, is interceding for us at the right hand of God. Uh, He is appearing in our place before God to offer up petitions on our behalf. Uh, One of the most helpful definitions I read in one of the commentaries this week said to pray in Jesus' name means to pray as His representative while about His business. So, I don't think it's appropriate to read this verse and and say, well, Jesus said, pray for anything and I'll do it. Uh, So, I'm going to pray for a Mercedes-Benz. The limit to believing prayer is that we are coming, presumably, as representatives of Jesus about His work, right? So, if I worked for a company, say I work for Walmart, and I come into a shareholders meeting, and I say, sell all your shares. They would think, hold on, something's, something's wrong here. That's not in keeping with a representative from Walmart. He wouldn't be telling us to sell all of our shares, right? Okay, so we don't come in Jesus' name and pray that the Lord would give us our neighbor's wife or, or that I would have my neighbor's car or that the Lord would help me to cheat my way into a better position at work. Something's wrong there, right? This person's not coming in Jesus' name as a representative carrying out the business of the one in whose name you pray. See, the Lord Jesus gave a commission to these disciples. There's a plan to be carried out, and the assumption is that they will pray according to that plan and according to Christ's will for them. And those are the things that Jesus is pleased to accomplish. Those are the prayers He will answer. Uh, You might take another text actually written by the Apostle John in his epistle some years later, 1 John 5, 14 through 15. He says a similar thing, but a little more specific in terms of this limitation on believing prayer. He says, 1 John 5, verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. So we pray according to the will of God, in the name of Christ and according to His plans and purposes. He is pleased to answer our prayer. One more thing I wish for you to see in these two verses with respect to this promise. It's a striking thing. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. What's going on there? Christ is tying the glory of God to the prayers of His people. In a sense, I don't think this is an overstatement, the glory of God is conditioned upon the prayers of His people, the answered prayers of His people. Christ is attaching, excuse me, God is attaching His glory to the success of the church. Pray for these things so that God would be glorified in the Son. Come in Jesus' name, make your petitions known so that I can bless and answer and give so that greater works might be done and that God might be glorified. It's a striking thing. So as we gather this evening for prayer, 
we recognize this is the appointed means by which God wills to gain His glory. Is that not a motivation to pray and to pray in faith? We want God to be glorified in the person of Jesus Christ. And He says to us, come to me in prayer, in the name of the Son, so that much glory might accrue to the Father in the Son. It's a glorious promise and should motivate us to believing prayer. Of all the things this promise might mean, I know one thing is for sure, we should certainly be encouraged and motivated to pray. We have promised in this text answered prayer according to Jesus' name and Jesus' will, and we have promised the fulfillment of the glory of God. The question is not, when we come to God in prayer, what do I want? The question is, is it Christ's will to accomplish great things through His church? The answer is surely yes, and so we pray, Lord, do those things and do them here and in every place where your church exists and where your people believe in you. That's what Jesus wants these disciples to understand. He says, I'm leaving. I'm going to the Father. From that vantage point, I will command resources and power, and I will send forth the Holy Spirit. And I want you to work out and to attempt great things for God's glory in Christ's kingdom. And I want you to come to me in believing prayer, asking for those things that are in accord with my will, and I will be pleased to answer you, and I will be pleased to do those things. So in closing, what does this mean for us? Well, we should be emboldened, brothers and sisters, to elevate our expectations for what God might do through His church. And we should be moved to pray. Moved to pray for God's work throughout the world, knowing that He has promised to accomplish great things through His church. And it would be appropriate, each one of us, to draw a very personal application Lord, I believe You. I have faith in You. And You have said, whoever believes, You will do great things through them because You have returned to the Father. Would You do great things through me? Show me what it is You wish for me to do. Help me to discern what great things I am to pursue and to lay hold of. Teach me, show me, make plain the way that You have for me. And each one of us should be encouraged that if we come to God in Jesus' name, that if we come to Him in believing prayer, He's pleased to answer our prayers in accordance with Christ's will. So, brothers and sisters, I encourage you, give yourselves to prayer, give yourselves to the church, and seek in God's help to lay hold of these greater things that God has called His church to. Let's pray together. Our Father, we would heed the instruction of this text even now. We say that we come to You in Jesus' name, by the way, the only way that has been made for us to have access to You. We thank You that where there was no way, You have made a way in Your Son, the Lord Jesus. Now, Lord, we apologize, we, we confess, we repent of our very low expectations of You. 
our very low expectations of what you might do through us and through your church? Have you not promised and have you not vindicated the promise to do great things through your people? We confess we don't know precisely what those things are in our lives and in the life of our church, but we feel, according to these promises, moved and justified in seeking to attempt great things for the glory of you, Father, in your Son, the Lord Jesus. We are encouraged to pray to you, asking that you would do great things through us and through our local church. We pray, Father, that you would allow us to take part in the work that was begun by the apostles those years ago. We pray that you would enable us to bear our witness to the glory and majesty and fame of the Lord Jesus. That you would enable us to be bold to witness to Jesus Christ who is Lord and Savior. We pray that through us, men and women would come to hear of the Lord Jesus and would be saved to the glory of God the Father. We pray that through us, churches would be planted and missionaries would be sent. We pray that through us, we would be able to take part of revival in our day and age. We pray that in and through us, great and awesome works of benevolence and charity and goodwill and good works in this community and other places would be carried out. We don't know exactly what you're doing for us and in us, Father, but we expect that it's these sorts of things. We hope that it's these sorts of things. So please, Father, accomplish your will and your purposes in us. As we sang minutes ago, speak to us, Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Uh, Speak, O Lord, till your church is built. Uh, Please, Lord, move and work in and through us. I pray for each one here, whatever capacities you've given to us, whatever our context, whatever our gifts, uh, that you would appropriately work in us an elevation of expectation for what you might be willing to do in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.